TED Audio Collective. Hey listeners, this is TED Health. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. The search for what makes us truly happy is as old as, well, pretty much forever. Whether you look for happiness in religion, work, or art, it seems like there's no one true answer. But a monumental scientific study from over 80 years of data has isolated one extremely consistent variable, strong relationships. Psychiatrist and Zen priest, Dr. Robert Waldinger, the lead researcher on this study, talks about the seemingly simple but extremely profound value of close ties. And stick around after the talk, as we'll find out how an unconventional shift in perspective might be an effective strategy for increasing happiness each day. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on fitness trends. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas that you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for this podcast comes from The Wonderful Company. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know the pistachios that come from this company. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Get snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. I love the various wonderful pistachio flavors. So in addition to the original flavor, I'm particularly fond of the salt and vinegar. And I keep little packets of them in my car so that I can eat and get some protein on the run. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. In 2015... I gave a TEDx talk in a little elementary school auditorium. And much to my surprise, the talk became one of the 10 most viewed talks in the history of TED. And in that talk, I conveyed one simple scientific finding. The finding that when we study hundreds of people over their entire adult lives, the people who turn out to be the happiest and the healthiest 
are those who have good, warm connections to others. So today, I want to take you deeper into this whole subject by exploring how relationships matter in our lives, how they affect our health, what kinds of relationships give us this big benefit in happiness, and which tools you can start using today to make your relationships stronger. So I do direct this Harvard study of adult development. It's, as far as we know, the longest study of the same people that's ever been done following people since 1938 from adolescence all the way through old age and now following all their children, thousands of lives. And we began to find about 30 years ago this startling connection between warm relationships and how good our lives feel to us, our well-being, and also the fact that warm relationships seemed to keep people both physically stronger and kept their brains sharper as they grew older. And we didn't believe the data at first. We thought, how could this be that that relationships actually get into our bodies and shape our health? But then other studies began to find the same thing. We found that people had less depression. They were less likely to get diabetes and heart disease, that they recovered faster from illness when they had better connections with other people. So then the question is, How could this work? How do relationships shape our happiness and our physical health? Well, one of the best theories for which there's now some pretty good evidence is based on the idea of stress. That, as we know, stress is an inevitable part of all of our lives. Stress happens to us every day. And what we find is that good relationships turn out to be stress regulators. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I have something upsetting happen to me during the day and I find myself like ruminating about it and really thinking about it and unhappy. I can feel my body go into what we call fight or flight response where literally my heart rate goes up and I might start sweating a little bit and I'm just not feeling as well. Now, What we're meant to do is to come back to equilibrium when a stressor goes away. That's the way the body is supposed to work. But what happens if I go home at the end of my upsetting day and I have somebody to talk to? Either I can call someone on the phone or it's somebody I live with. I can literally feel my body calm down. I can feel that fight or flight response subside. But what if I don't have anybody to go home to? What if there's nobody I can call? What we find is that people who are isolated, are lonely, don't have those stress regulators that we get from good relationships and that we stay in chronic fight or flight mode, that our bodies have this chronic stress, chronic levels of inflammation, and circulating stress hormones that wear away our happiness and break down different body systems. 
Well, what kinds of relationships seem essential to well-being? And this is interesting. We asked people of, um, who were our original participants in our study, we asked them, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And many of our people could list several other people they could call if they were in trouble. Some people couldn't list anyone. There wasn't a person on the planet who they could turn to if they were sick or scared. And what we find is that having at least one person in your life who you feel really has your back, who you could go to if you were in trouble, that's essential for maintaining our happiness and our health. When we asked these same people, when they got to be in their 80s, to look back on their lives and to tell us what they were proudest of, almost everybody said something about their relationships. They didn't say, I made a lot of money or I won some big awards. They said, I was a good mentor. I was a good friend. I raised healthy kids. I was a good partner. And so what we find is that what seems to mean the most to people when they get to the end of their lives is the strength and the warmth of their connections to others. So then the question comes up, well, which types of relationships support our well-being? Some people have asked, do I need to be in an intimate relationship to get this benefit? Absolutely not. All types of relationships support our well-being. So friendships, relatives, work colleagues, casual contacts, the person who gets you your coffee every morning at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, the person who checks you out in the grocery store, who you see maybe every week, even talking to strangers has that benefit. So they did an experiment where they assigned some people who were about to go on the subway the task of talking to a stranger, while other people were assigned the task of just doing their usual thing of being on their phones or listening to music or reading. It turned out that the people who were assigned to talk to strangers didn't think they were going to like it, but they turned out to be much happier at the end of the task than the people who just rode the subway keeping to themselves. So even talking to strangers gives us that little hit of well-being from relationships. So the question comes up, how can we strengthen our connections with other people? And this is where we've come to think about it as a kind of social fitness. If we think about physical fitness, you know, we, we think, okay, I'll go to the gym, I'll work out, I'll take a long walk, I'll do something to keep myself strong and fit. But then we come home and we don't say, I'm done, I don't ever have to do that again. We have the sense that physical fitness is a practice that we need to maintain over time. It turns out that social fitness is the same. That in fact, our friendships, our relationships don't just take care of themselves. That even good relationships need tending to, they need attention. They need returning to them over and over again. So what are some ways that we can strengthen our relationships? Well, one way is to be proactive, to take the initiative. So to reach out to a friend 
and ask her to take a walk instead of spending two more hours on your laptop this weekend on Saturday afternoon. Establish some routines with the people who are most important to you. A regular phone call or a coffee every Saturday with someone you really want to be sure you see regularly or meeting somebody at the gym or having lunch with a coworker. The other thing we can do is liven up those long-standing relationships, particularly like the people we live with. You know, people we can come to take for granted by proposing to do something new, going out on a date, um, uh, just taking a walk if that's not your usual routine. The other thing that we know works to help people, particularly who aren't as connected to others as they want to be, is to connect around shared interests. So volunteer in the community to do something that you care about. It might be a gardening club. It might be a bowling league. It might be a political cause. But to do something that you care about because then you're with other people who care about the same thing. And that's a natural place to start conversations that can lead to ongoing relationships. And finally, get more comfortable striking up casual conversations. That's something we can learn to be more comfortable with, almost like exercising a muscle. So now I would like to ask you to do one of these things, to make one of these choices that we can make every day. I'd like you to make that choice right now. Here's my challenge to you. Think about someone you miss that you just haven't seen in a while or you haven't had contact with and you'd like to make contact. You don't even have to have a particular reason. Now, I want you to take out your phone or whatever device you use right now and send that person just a little note. It could say, I'm just thinking of you and wanted to connect. Or you could say something more personal to you and to your relationship. And then watch what comes back to you. And while we're here, we might even have time to share with each other some of the responses that people get when they do this. So think of someone and make contact right now. The point of this simple exercise is to remind us that even small actions can have ripple effects that build our well-being, and that these are things you can do every day in the moment. Thank you. Hey, listeners, Dr. Shoshana here. I know we just heard a talk about happiness. So that's why this turn may feel a little intense. But I want to switch gears a bit and talk about death. And while it may sound like we're headed in an entirely different direction, happiness and death have more to do with one another than you might think. So bear with me. I've witnessed so many of my patients suffer in and around the end of their lives. And it made me wonder whether things had to be this way. 
So much so that I've dedicated my career, at least so far, to changing the narrative around death and dying. One reason I think this suffering happens is that we as a society and in medicine are afraid of death. We don't think about it through our lives, we don't talk about it, and we definitely don't plan for it, despite death being inevitable for all of us. So today, let's look at what the data suggests on whether having a relationship with the fact that one day life will end actually allows us to live happier lives every day. And to be honest, I assumed that the answer was yes, but I was surprised to learn that it's not so clear-cut. In 2017, I started a nonprofit called Endwell, which, as the name suggests, aims to normalize conversations about death and dying and offers solutions to make the experiences less hard. From my experience caring for many patients close to the end of their lives, the ones who had a relationship with their own mortality seemed happier. They showed more appreciation and acceptance for the present moment even if they were sick. So I wondered if thinking about the end earlier on in life actually makes a difference in overall life satisfaction. A study published in the Journal of Positive Psychology found that people who had a higher sense of purpose in life, which is often linked to an acceptance of mortality, were more likely to bounce back from stressful experiences and maintain a positive outlook on life. So might living with this awareness of our own death also lead to greater resilience in the face of challenges? The study also suggests that when we realize that our time on earth is limited, we're more likely to view difficult experiences as opportunities for growth and learning. And other research has shown that people who think about their deaths tend to be happier and more fulfilled than people who avoid the topic altogether. According to another study published in Personality and Social Psychology Review, people who thought about this were more likely to prioritize their goals and engage in behaviors that were consistent with their values. So for some, acknowledging our mortality makes us more focused on what truly matters in life, and we're more likely to make choices that align with our values and goals. Some research also suggests that the benefits extend beyond just individuals. A study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that people who were reminded of their own mortality were more likely to engage in pro-social behavior, such as donating to charity or helping a stranger. And this was because they were more aware of the impact they could have on others and the world around them. Okay, so not to state the obvious, but there's also evidence to suggest that thinking about death can have negative effects on our happiness and well-being. One study found that when participants were reminded of their own mortality and had their worldview or their self-esteem threatened, they experienced increased anxiety and decreased positive emotions. Another study found that people who were exposed to death-related triggers were more likely to engage in harmful, impulsive behavior like smoking or overeating. So for some, it seems contemplating mortality while lacking appropriate psychological buffers like self-esteem or close interpersonal relationships, can make them acutely aware of their own limitations, making them unhappy. 
So are there certain types of people who fare better than others when thinking about their eventual end? It turns out that people who have a strong sense of spirituality or religiosity are less likely to experience anxiety and depression related to their thoughts of death. For some people, thinking about death in a spiritual context can bring a sense of peace and comfort. A person's life circumstances, like their health, financial situation, or even social support, can impact how they respond to thoughts about mortality. Individuals who've had significant life challenges may be more negatively impacted by thoughts about dying. From my experience caring for people with advanced cancer, in general, those who have more social support have lower levels of depression and anxiety related to their illness. And as we just heard in the talk with Dr. Waldinger, this type of support can provide a buffer against the negative emotions that can come up when thinking about one's own ending. So which is it? Does contemplating one's own mortality make us happier or not? My father recently died of cancer, and even in the face of my grief, thinking about my own death helps me to put my problems into perspective and keeps me focused on what really matters in my life right now. But the answer really depends on the context by which you approach the subject. One thing I know for sure, it's important to confront this process with an open mind and a willingness to face potentially difficult emotions. So if you decide to go there, I hope you find that thinking about the end serves as a reminder to live with intention, gratitude, and compassion for yourself and others. It certainly has for me. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Dan O'Donnell and fact-checked by Vanessa Garcia-Woodworth. Special thanks to Maria Lages, Grace Rubenstein, Farah Day Grunge, Jimmy Gutierrez, Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, and Colin Helms. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>